So the subject of tonight's discussion is the core beliefs of Judaism. Now, when we talk about core beliefs of Judaism, you're typically going to levitate or gravitate towards the Rambam, Maimonides. Maimonides, as the great halachic codifier, the great uh, uh, Jewish philosopher, uh, you know, the most, one of the most influential Jews of all time, literally, uh, by you know, the first to um, make an entire commentary of the Mishnah, the first to take all the laws of the Talmud and organize them in a way that's more palatable uh, and relatable to the average fellow. Uh, remarkable character, uh, the Rambam. In fact, if you want to hear more about that, go to the website, click Man of the Millennium. I gave an hour and a half long talk about his life and his impact and his writings and everything. Uh, but he goes out of his way in one of his books to organize and uh, arrange and codify the principles of Judaism. We talk about Judaism, and we have a lot of mitzvahs. You open the book, say, do this, do that. You see the, you see the bird, send away the bird, take the baby, right? Uh, uh, don't eat this part of the animal, right? Don't use this kind of shaver when you shave your... All the details. Uh, but what about the principles? What are the beliefs? What about the core foundations of the religion? Uh, that's scattered. That's not organized. So Maimonides, uh, in his commentary on the Mishnah, he uh, writes as follows. He says that there's 13 principles of the Jewish faith. We heard the term 13 principles comes from, the, from Maimonides. Now Maimonides, by the way, just a cute little tidbit, he wrote this when his family was fleeing from the Almohads uh, from, the, from Spain. So they went to Spain, then they went to Morocco, in Fez, and then in Fez, the uh, the Muslims, the radical Almohads, came to, Morocco, to Fez as well. They lived in mountains, in the Atlas Mountains in northern Morocco, for nine years, from when he was 15 to when he was 24. When he was 24, he moves to Cairo, and he arrives in Cairo, and he publishes his book. Right? What's the book? A commentary on all 63 books of the Mishnah. So think about the scope. A, 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 a scope that has not, a, not been undertaken in uh, a thousand years since the publication of the Mishnah uh, under the uh, stewardship of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasim, Judah the Prince, about the year 200, the Common Era. No one has done that. Some 24-year-old guy who's been living in caves with his family, mm-hmm. he comes out and writes a commentary. And in the commentary, in the introduction to uh, the last chapter of Sanhedrin, the book of Sanhedrin, the book of, 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 of the Mishnah that talks about... Uh, uh, the judicial process and jurisprudence and uh, the uh, methods of uh, arranging and different kinds of courts and how do you examine witnesses, all that. At the end, uh, there's a chapter that deals with all the philosophical, major philosophical issues in Judaism, and wherein Maimonides, in his introduction, goes on a very, very, very long uh, treatise mm-hmm. on reward and punishment. If you want to know what Judaism has to say about reward and punishment, the first place to go is Maimonides, right over here. Read all of this. It's fantastic, fabulous. Uh, and then afterwards, he gives us his basic introduction to Jewish faith and uh, is uh, the 13 principles of faith. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to try and go through them uh, 1 to 13. We could do really essentially, if we wanted to really delve into the subject at greater length, we would do maybe a 13 part series on this. We're going to try to do it all in one. Now, the impact uh, or the, the after effects. Of this, uh, of this arrangement that Maimonides does was quite controversial. You know, one of the most, Maimonides was not a stranger to controversy, uh, but one of the things that uh, really had uh, its um, reverberations in the Jewish world of Maimonides' writings was uh, this idea. The idea of a principle. Right? 
what is he essentially saying? He is essentially saying is these 13 core ideas are so central, are so pivotal, vital, right? Essential to Judaism that they're even more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. Right? Essentially what he was saying, he's giving degrees of importance, so to speak, to mitzvahs, to ideals. Mm-hmm. And that's a novel idea. Like, who is not to say, perhaps there's 613 principles of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Each mitzvah is its own principle. So, that's the controversy. That was the controversy. You hear about controversy in the different books that were written to try to debate Maimonides, etc. That w- it wasn't about, no one questioned the legitimacy of any one of these new principles. It's important, I want to repeat this again. No one who has any sort of problem or any sort of controversy with Maimonides' 13 principles, it's not about the, the legitimacy, the accuracy, the veracity of any one of those 13 principles. No one uh, repudiates uh, those at all. All 13 are accepted by everyone, at least at that time. All of Maimonides' detractors were not arguing whether or not his 13 points are true and valid. What they were arguing about was, excuse me, was whether or not they're principles. Are they principles? Are there other principles? Right. So there's a book called the Sefer HaEkrim, which means the Book of Principles, written by a contemporary of the Rambam, and he argues that there's only three principles. There's three principles. And what's that? God, prophecy, or Torah, mm-hmm. reward and punishment. Three principles. Not 13, three principles. If you actually look at Maimonides, you'll notice that the first five are God-centric, are theological. Mm-hmm. The next four are prophecy, right? Moses, prophets, Torah, accuracy of the Torah, right? And the last four are about reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they're, they're actually not arguing. What Maimonides did was he broke it down to a granular level to tell you what specifically about belief in God do you have to have in order to be a Jew, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so he says, well, believe in God, if I, if I just say, hey, <clears throat> Here's your application, mm-hmm. sir. Do you believe in God? Check. Well, okay, okay. Do you believe in God? Yes or no? Well, it depends what your definition is. Mm-hmm. Right? We have a very granular definition of God. Says Maimonides, to believe in the Jewish God, you have to believe in these five principles. Those and it breaks it down. So essentially it's one idea, but the principles are enumerated one to five. Mm-hmm. Right? Prophecy, Torah, you gotta believe that. Okay, what does that mean? Break it down to the four crucial elements. Lastly, reward and punishment is also, excuse me, it's also um, broken down to the various elements of reward and punishment. Now, what's so special about these 13 principles? What's, what about them make them core? What about them make them principles? Uh, the answer to that is that what makes them special is the fact that if you did not have that, you cannot have Judaism. Judaism depends on these principles. On all 13, exactly. Uh, if you have, for example, let's just take reward and punishment. Let's say there was no reward and punishment. Right? There was no afterlife. There's no Mashiach. There's no Tchesemesim. All the principles that he brings that we'll see later on. What would you have? You would have a, a world of meaninglessness. Yeah. Why? Not chaos necessarily, but you'll have meaninglessness because if our actions have no repercussions, if our actions don't actually do anything, it doesn't, doesn't matter whether I do a mitzvah or I sin. It doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't have an indelible, appreciable, um, uh, real consequence. Well, then it wasn't really anything. So what did I do? I did nothing. Right? Doing something important, by definition, has a consequence, good or bad. 
Thus, for us to have meaning in our life, for us to have Judaism, we have to have reward and punishment. Not because we want punishment, mm-hmm. right? And not even because we want reward, right? What does the, the Mishnah say? The Mishnah says, you should, you should, and this is according to the Ram. How does the Ram read the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, the chapters of the Fathers? It says, don't be like a servant who serves the master with intention to receive the reward. Mm-hmm. Be like a servant who does with intention to not receive reward, mm-hmm. right? We don't want a reward. It's not about that. But reward and punishment, that is indicative, or that, that's demonstrative. That underscores the fact that our actions mean something. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we didn't have Torah. Well, of course, we didn't have Torah. You know, if we didn't have prophets, well, we wouldn't have Torah. If we didn't have Moses, we wouldn't be able to have Torah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we have Torah, then, of course, there's no meaning, there's no, there's no instructive, there's no instruction from us, from a divine source, as to how we should live our lives. And, of course, if there's no God, well, there's no meaning by definition, right? If God does not exist, if we're all random, if we just could exist or could not exist, well, then what are we? Well, what consequence do we have? I find it always ironic that those that um, are uh, combative atheists or uh, like debating to prove that God doesn't exist are essentially trying to prove an oxymoronic idea. It means any ideal that you have uh, ought to be based on the fact that ideal matters. Like someone passionately trying to disprove God is essentially saying, I'm passionately trying to prove that there should be no passion for anything. Right? Though we should have no consequences. Life uh, by definition, ought to be inconsequential if the fa- if God doesn't exist because if it's just random. If it's just random, then what are we? You know, we're a bunch of uh, of 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 careening uh, uh, of careening um, molecules or particles or atoms that happen to have the ability to have consciousness and sense of reward of of pleasure and pain. That's it. That's all we are. There should be no debate. Like whether or not something's true or not doesn't matter. Right? It's inconsequential. Right. So that's ironic. But if God doesn't exist, well, then once again, life is meaningless. So thus, Torah, the Torah's guide for how we're supposed to live our lives and the value that we have and the life that we live as a result of that can only be possible if these 13 principles are true. Does that mean that these uh, 13 principles are the only true principles in the Torah? No. It just means that these 13 principles that we cannot have without it. Uh, and there are those that would want to go on to say that these are also essential beliefs. You have to believe that to be part of to be part of the people. If you are saying, I don't believe in one of them, you're kind of saying, I'm not part of this collective being that we call the Jewish people. How impactful were these 13 principles? They were actually included in every single sitter that we have today. While there may have been debate at the time, the debate has been settled by looking at any sitter, any sitter you have, uh, it will have in it, uh, at the end of the prayer, the 13 animamas, which is a pretty poor adaptation of the actual 13 principles. Now, remember, this book was written in Arabic. Mamanis mm-hmm. uh, wrote so much in Arabic, so much in, in Hebrew. It was written, actually, in Arabic with Hebrew letters. Very interesting what he did. Uh, either way, this is the translation, the Ibn Tibbin translation, um, Maimonides. Uh, has an official translator, the Ibn Tibbon family, Yehuda and Shmuel Ibn Tibbon. They did this translation. There's more contemporary translations as well. Either way, we have the Hebrew translation now from the original Arabic, uh, but this is an adaptation, much shorter. If you look at, let's say, uh, principle number seven, just look at my book. This is principle number seven. Lots and lots of words. And principle number seven here is about 12 words. You know, that's it. Uh, that's adaptation number one. And if also, at the beginning of the prayer service, we have a prayer called Yigdal. The Yiddal prayer. The Yiddal prayer was also adapted from Maimonides' thirteen principles of faith. Here we go. The uh, this is from the article on the bottom. The song of uncertain authorship summarizes the thirteen principles of faith expounded by the Rambam in the commentary to Mishnah and Edrin chapter ten. So, uh, if someone wants to question the impact of the Maimonides' thirteen principles of, of faith, you all you got to say is, listen, it was uh, it, it was forever 
uh, it was forever enshrined into Jewish liturgy, in the Jewish prayer book, as being the official uh, description of Jewish philosophy. So we don't question this whatsoever. Either way, let's dig into the 13 principles. So these, once again, are 13 principles divided up into three categories. One of them talking about God, one of them talking about uh, prophecy, and one of them talking about reward upon the Torah. Now, prophecy will include in the Torah. Okay, now uh, let's go to number one. So what's the, what is number one? Number one is, very, I think, very simple, uh, and that is believe in God. Mm-hmm. got to believe in God. Right. I am the Lord your God. That's it. You got to believe in God. What does that mean? It means to believe in an entity that brought about everything else. That is, we look at our relationship with God as being an ongoing giving of life, giving of, uh, of uh, ongoing recreation, not, not recreation, recreation, not recreation, recreation of what we are. We have in the, in the, uh, in the in, in the in the in the midrash in the midrash and the Talmud, we talk about this idea of kfitzat haderech of jumping from one place to another place of Jacob traveling and suddenly God makes him travel more expeditiously. Have we heard of that? Teleportation. Right. Teleportation. Well, how does that work? So, according to one of the commentaries, the way it works is that God is every second recreating us. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we kind of think that hey, I'm alive till I'm dead. So we think, what was the cause of death? That's the question we ask. What was the cause of death? Right. Oh, that cancer, that, that heart attack, that stroke, he was hit by a car. That's the cause of death. That's what we see. But in reality, in the spiritual sense, the bigger question is, what's the cause of life? What's the cause of life? Why? What do I do to deserve for God to continually reinfuse me with life? You know, every second I'm being created over here, sitting here. The miracle, perhaps... One of the greatest miracles is the fact that God continually recreates me in the same place. Because if God were to decide to recreate me in my bed in, in the teal run, I could just, you know, just one time I'll be here, one time I'll be gone. You'll say, hell, how'd you get there? Well, you would just recreate a different place. Uh, but we have many, many sources to talk about this idea of God continually re- uh, recreating. So now when someone wants, when God wants to teleport someone, what does he do? There's no magic, just you recreate them someplace else. Mazel tov, you're there. Uh, but everything is. Cont- dependent on God's continually uh, influencing it with life. Right? Uh, thus, an important point, we are only living due to, and not only us, the entire world. You know, the Talmud says that every, there is no, not a single blade of grass that doesn't have an angel that says to grow. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's actually an angel. Your angel number eight quadrillion, right? Nine sextillion, right? That's, is that what it means? Really? There's just angels? Uh, oh, some guy planted in his backyard. Let's make more angels. Right? Is it, maybe. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that that's not true. I'm just saying what it means is that even things as uh, inconsequential as a blade of grass, it has to have a certain spiritual root. Right? It, has, it has to have some sort of spiritual life. Otherwise, it doesn't exist. Why? Because the definition, nothing can exist unless God wills it to exist. Is that where we get the idea that everything is sustained by the power of the Torah? Well, well that, no, Torah, that's something else. That, that's one of the reasons why we study Torah. One of the powers of the Torah, the fact that the Torah continues the world to exist. Means if, means if people would, were to stop, the Talmud says in the Dharma 30, 32a, if people were to stop studying Torah for even one second, the world would cease to exist. Why? Because what merit does humanity have that God continually recreates us? Merit of Torah study. If not for the covenant of day and night, what's the covenant of day and night? What agreement do we have with God? 
that binds us by day and night, if not for the covenant of day and night, if not for people, humans, Jews, studying Torah, I would not place the laws of heaven and earth. The world would not exist. The world only exists in merit of the Torah. Thus, so that, 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 that's your point. So the merit, why, we, uh, why we're continually being recreated. Isn't that in Nicknell that he will not be placed to be righteous? It might be. Yeah, well, that's one of the laws. That's one of the things later on. Yes. Now, another thing, another part of, of principle number one is that God needs nothing. God is not dependent on anything. Everything's dependent on God. Right? This is that the first entity that everything else is dependent upon it. If you withdraw God from the equation, everything else ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. As opposed to if you withdraw everything else, well, God does not cease to exist. God's not dependent on us or anything. We're all dependent on him. Okay? That's principle number one. By the way, this opens a very important question. If God needs nothing, if God's situation cannot be improved or regressed in any way, well, then why did he create everything? What is the motivation for God to create the world? That's a very, very important question. That's already Jewish philosophy 102 or 201. That's a very advanced question. And it's a legitimate question that was, uh, that was addressed by all the, great, all the great books of Jewish philosophy. Once we establish the definition of God, we're not dealing with the Greek gods that could be bribed. You can't bribe a good, doesn't need anything, right? So once you deal with the Jewish definition of God, well, then if, if an obvious question arises, and that is, okay, fine, if God needs nothing, God's situation cannot be improved by anything we do, he's not dependent on us in any single way, way shape, or form, well, okay, why did he create us? Why create the whole world with so much detail and, you know, millions of different organisms and so vast and billions and trillions of stars and the whole universe and man who is half man, half Half, half beast, half angel, and the Torah, and all this. What for? That is a very question. We have more time tonight. I want to get through all 13 principles. If we have more time, we'll go back to address that. That's principle number one. Principle two, God's one. We talk about God being one. Uh, this is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around because we're dealing with theology. Theology is a, uh, for us, Jewish theology, well, which means the Jewish study of the Jewish God is always going to be tricky for us because from the very onset, we're told we cannot understand it. We're describing an entity that we could hear the definition of it. It doesn't make sense to us. Why is that? Because we cannot understand things that are not finite. We cannot understand something that not have any boundaries. We cannot understand something that not, not, not being bound by time. Does it make sense for us something to exist today and yesterday at the same time? It doesn't. We have no idea. We have no life experience to, uh, to, to reference it upon. Uh, like Maimonides, this is the example he brings. He says, listen, if I told you, or God forbid, if someone was blind, describe to them yellow, green, orange. Describe. What are you going to use? Uh, well, uh, yellow is vibrant and really warm. The sun's yellow. Okay, it doesn't help you. If you've never seen yellow, you can't understand it. You can't, if you say green is luscious, the guy has no clue what you're saying. They, you say red is really striking, they have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Unless you've experienced it, you don't have the words to describe it. He gives, says that uh, uh, audio as well. If you've never heard anything, nothing can be done to describe it to you. Similarly, the physical and spiritual world are diametrically opposite. Physical is all ba- about boundaries. It's all finite. It's all limited. And the opposite would be by the spiritual world. God is something that we cannot wrap, wrap our heads around. We cannot experience it. Right? It's not something that we have a experiential overlap. As, and similarly to our soul, by the way, 
our soul as well. Our soul is also, and the pleasures of our soul are something which are not physical. You can't describe the pleasure of studying Torah in, to a child. Why does a child not get the pleasure of studying Torah? Because it's not something they've experienced. If you haven't experienced it, I can't say it's like an ice cream plus watching a football game. Like, there's no words to use. There's no vocabulary where there's overlap between the descriptions of physical pleasures and spiritual pleasures. They're different. Thus, we're going to have a problem. When we talk about defining God, God's one. What does that even mean? It's a hard thing for us to understand. But he does help us along, along the way by saying, listen, it's not like a one that is divisible. Completely indivisible. Cannot be comprised of any parts. Like we think, okay, one. Well, okay, Kyle's one. He's only one guy, right? There's only two Kyles that are melted together. Okay, but Kyle has arms. And the arms are comprised of little, you know, uh, uh, arteries and veins and corpuscles and whatnot, right? Everything is comprised of something else. It's just building blocks. You, and you, and you, you do, go deeper, there's atoms. And then you go even deeper, there's subatomic atoms. And who's what those are made of? We, you know, right? Everything we see is comprised of little things, right? Uh, God is not physical at all, and it's one, it's, but it's, not, it's, it's indivisible. So this is an idea, it's very hard for us to try to visualize it or conceptualize it, but that's that we say, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, Shema God is one, and this one is not comparable to any other one or element of oneness that we can wrap our heads around. That's principle number two. Principle number three, not physical. God does not have a body. God does not have any sort of physical uh, manifestation, right? Uh, it's impossible to connect to God via the senses. God sees us, we cannot see him. Prophecy, what does prophecy mean? Prophecy does not mean that you connect to God physically. It means you have to connect to God spiritually. But in a way that your spiritual entities come to the surface. Right? Your power of your soul connects to God, not your body. Your, you know, it's, it's your, phys, your spiritual sensors take over. Thus, you could see God or relate to God, right? You're, not, you're no longer seeing the world through the physical lens, only the spiritual lens. We cannot smell God. You know, we can't feel God. We can taste God. Yes, we see things that teach us about God. You know, you smell something nice. Uh, you see a beautiful flower. You see design in the world. You, you hear nice music. You see things. You, you encounter things that could bring you closer to God via your intellect. But we cannot connect to God in our phys- with, with our physical. Remember, they're opposites. They, don't, they have no wavelength where they, where they encounter each other. Uh, so God's not physical. God doesn't have, doesn't have any physical entity. Uh, also important, God does not have any emotions. Emotions are a, uh, a quality demonstrated by us humans. So if I go to Kyle and I punch him in the face, he upset at me, he start raging back, he'll get angry. I don't want to fight back. I don't feel revenge. And someone could be envious. Or someone could be humble or good or bad. It doesn't matter, right? These are temperaments that are not possible for God to have, right? God's one. God's not bound by time. God doesn't have any qualities of a physical being like we do, right? When you believe the Jewish God, you're saying all these things, right? If someone says, I believe in God, but I believe in JC, right? You don't believe the Jewish God. You, you might believe in someone God. I don't know, I don't, you know. It's, 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 it's multiple words, right? You know, the word two can mean two and also, right? Well, well, what are we talking about? Torah says, this is the Jewish God. Jewish God's one. God can't have any parts, no physical manifestations whatsoever. You believe in it, so you're not believing in God, right? That's essentially what you're saying. Not the Jewish God, no. some other God. I don't know, the Greek God or some sort of polytheistic God or whatever. But you're not, you're not, you're not, this is what Mani's saying. So someone could say, hey, I'm a believer, and you're a believer. I'm a believer in God. Okay, what does that mean? 
according to the Torah that would uh, that would uh, not open the possibility for uh, for belief in JC as being a belief in the Jewish God. Uh, now, what happens, by the way? And also another important question: What happens with a the Torah? The Torah talks about. Uh, Physical manifestations. God's angry at the Jewish people. I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. I took the Jewish people of the land of uh, Egypt with an outstretched arm, right? Anthropomorphisms, right? Anthropomorphisms. What do you do about anthropomorphisms? We give finite qualities to an infinite being. So, Maimonides, where he talks about this, the first page of Maimonides, he talks about it here as well. This is an example of talking to someone in the language they understand. I could talk to you guys in, I don't know, French, but you guys might understand. All right, but if I start talking, Maybe you guys speak, uh, no, anyone here speaks Amharic or Swahili or Vietnamese or, or Mandarin Chinese or Russian, right? You're not speaking to me in a language I understand. The Torah wants, the Torah is instructive. The word Torah, we talked about this last time. Torah means an instruction. An instruction for who? For humans. Torah is written in a way that humans can understand. When the Torah wants to tell us that God took out the Jewish people in a mighty way, in a marvelous way, in a miraculous way, it says with an outstretched arm, but that's what we understand. We have an imagery of a, of a mighty warrior coming with an outstretched arm. Right? Imagery we understand, God says that imagery about himself. Not because that actually happens. God doesn't have nostrils or hair or hands or anything like that. It doesn't have any parts of the physical body. So what does it mean? It's an anthropomorphism, but it's told in order to teach us, for us to understand, for us to know, for us to have knowledge. God cannot get angry. Remember, think about this. What happens when they get angry? So let's let's look at the timeline here. You have someone who's not angry. Something instigates him. You see something in the news or or, or something happens to him while he's driving, right? Oh, now he's angry, right? It, anger can only happen along a timeline. God doesn't have a timeline, right? If God doesn't exist within a timeline, well, then nothing can inst- and, and, and nothing instigates uh, nothing instigates to kick off that anger. So when it says that God is angry, it does not mean that God is angry. It means that God is treating the world or humanity or the Jewish people with a response, with an influence that us humans associate with anger. It's a very, very important point. Uh, anthropomorphism. So that's, the, that's, uh, that's number three. Uh, number four, God's not bound to time, right? Remember, God exists out of time. Uh, this is, once again, something very hard for us to wrap our heads around. Uh, it's not so e- not so easy to accept. Like it, it's not so easy for us to conceptualize. It's not we live in a reality that is bound by certain restrictions, right? It's to understand how an entity can exist beyond time is very hard for us to understand. And by the way, th- the more we think about this, uh, the more confused we could potentially get because you're essentially using a tool that's not designed to understand something to try to understand that thing. Right, uh, all that does like you have a computer. Computer, you you have a computer, and you put it on the computer game that has a, a requirement, a minimum requirement that's beyond the hardware of the computer. It doesn't know what to do with it. Right, that's a problem. You know, uh, we talked about all the questions, the, all, all the philosophical questions, the dilemmas that we have. Well, how uh, do we have free will if God knows everything? Major question. Everyone talks about that. But essentially, what we're doing is, I say, okay, was it? God knows what happens because God exists tomorrow as much as he exists yesterday. Well, okay. Uh, if so, well, God knows what happens. So how do I have a choice? What we're trying to do is trying to make an intersection here between our world and God's world, right? That's what essentially what we're trying to do. And we get tied up into little pretzels because it's something which is very hard to do. Like you, you cannot reconcile 
opposing worlds. You can't. You know how it works. We don't know, but we know we have free will. We have evidence to that. Just like I'll tell you. You know what? If God has no boundaries, well, then how could something exist that's not God? All of us are not God. We just said God is not a body, right? Well, then there's something which God is not. Oh, what does that mean? How is how could we something? How could there be some sort of limitation? Well, okay, that's once again we're asking the same question on a different faith, on a different, on a different, on a different uh, 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 plane. It's the same question. But any time we do this of taking our world, trying to fork it with God's world, and trying to understand how they're compatible, it's usually an exercise in futility because essentially we're trying to do the impossible. Uh, yes, and there's always the risk of doing that. Right, right, because, yes, exactly. Um, so, yes, it's, 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 a, it's an important thing to address. Maimonides does talk about these questions, uh, but for us to understand the question of how we exist, does anyone doubt that we exist? No one doubts that we exist, yet we say we're not God. No one ever agrees that they're not there themselves and not God, unless you're one of those crazy, 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 crazy megalomaniacs. But most people know that they're not God. Okay, fine. So God's not me. So there's something which God is not. So I have control beyond God. What does it mean God's limited? But God's not limited. So how do these things exist? We don't know. We have no idea how God made himself or created the world in a way where he has no influence. We don't, we don't know, right? But the folly is trying to take our world and trying to understand how it, it coexists with, with, with God. That's why, by the way, in Jewish, in Jewish philosophy, we don't spend so much time talking about theology. Because theology is very confusing for us, uh, and especially if you accept the Jewish definition of God, and therefore it it's often does more harm than good. Ramani talks about theology as being the pardis. Pardis. Pardis means an orchard. But Pardis also has much deeper meanings in Jewish literature because it is a location or a place or an idea that is uh, that ought to be treaded upon very, very carefully. We have the stories of the great rabbis who went into the Pardis, went into the orchard. Well, what happened to them? Some of them emerged fine. Some of them died. One guy went crazy. The other guy went off, went off, abandoned religion. It's a very dangerous uh, field to go upon. Says Maimonides, well, what do you do about that? First study the rest of the Torah, everything. From the scripture to the Mishnah to the Talmud to all the commentaries, everything, and then you can approach the uh, pardes. Right? That's that, that, that's our approach to that as well. So these are important principles to know, uh, but we don't make it the uh, focus of our of our scholarship. Okay, let's look at number five. Uh, number five is only God is worthy of our worship. Right? Uh, the big mistake that happened that humanity made all the way at the beginning was where they made a crucial error of getting off the bus stop one stop too early. If I believe in God, right, perhaps I could rationalize, you know what? God's wonderful, marvelous, fantastic, incredible. But look at God's creations. Look at the sun. Ooh, it's amazing. Look at the moon. Oh, fantastic, right? Remarkable. Look Look at all these great things, right? Let's accord honor and glory and admiration to God's creations, and by dint of that, we'll also kind of honor God, right? That was the calculation of the original idolaters, where they, in 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 effort to try to uh, appreciate God, in an effort to try to laud and 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 worship God, they instead worship the sun. And eventually, after some time, people forgot to take it to the next step and say, oh, we're worshiping the sun because the sun is God's cre- creation. Mm-hmm. And they just stopped there. And eventually, that, that, that began the development of, uh, of, of humanity. 
So uh, we don't talk. So even great humans, Maimonides, uh, not Maimonides, Maimonides would be another example. Moshe, great Mo- Moses, right? So Moses is uh, the greatest man that ever lived. Remarkable. Was there a single Jew who thought he was God? Absolutely not. The Jews thought that then perhaps some Jews thought that they could couldn't go into Israel without them or couldn't succeed without them or or can't progress without them, but no one said that he was God. Because deep down entrenched in the in the Jewish psyche is the idea of humans cannot be God, God cannot be humans. Those things are mutually exclusive. That's number five. So let's go over one through five. Again, the five core elements of Jewish theology. Number one, God exists, the creator who brought, who brought everything to existence. He is dependent on nothing. Everything is dependent upon him. He needs nothing. Uh, God's one, not comprised of any parts, uh, not physical. Uh, that's the anthropomorphisms are just meant to instruct us. Not bound by time, it's just out of time. does not have a beginning or end. Everything ceases, he continues to go. And only God is worthy of our worship. Okay, that's, 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 that's number five. Once you believe in number five, let's move on to number six. What's number six? Prophecy. Prophecy is perhaps what we uh, just recently talked about as being something we try to avoid, right? Where the human or the humankind or the human realm is going to intersect with the spiritual realm, prophecy is the exception. As we mentioned last time, prophecy is not a lottery. There's no sort of thing as someone waking up and saying, oh, you know what? I hit the jackpot. I got the three little Torahs, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a a prophet. Prophecy is is a manifestation of someone's growth. When someone has their spiritual side being as powerful, perhaps even more powerful than, than their physical side, then they're going, they're well on the way to be prophets. I don't know exactly what the point is, right? But we started off life as being almost entirely physical, right? Our existence, our hearts pumping because we're spiritual. We have the soul within us, right? We're alive because of our spiritual side. But what do we care about? What's our motivations? What's our response? What's our instincts? Our instincts are all uh, uh, animalistic. We grow up. Hopefully our parents do a good job in instructing us to become more of a mensch, right? Act like a human, like an animal. Right? We don't need it with our hands, right? We become less and less like an animal, more and more like a human, right? Humans, a balance of animalistic side on one hand, our instinctual side, our desires, our whims on one hand. On the other hand, it's our intelligence, our spiritual side, our yearning for God and for a connection to the eternal. Greatness, as per what the Torah is instructing us, is going to help us become spiritual-centric, soul-centric. Right? And perhaps, if we reach the final end of the road, we'll look like Moses. What, what did Moses look like? He was close. Uh, well, he wore a mask. We don't know what yeah. he looked like. Because yeah. had he t- taken off the mask, he would have looked like the sun. Yeah. Why is that? What's the sun representative? The sun and the stars representative of something that our physical senses cannot encounter. Why? That's a spiritual. Right. Not divine, not divine, but total spiritual essence, right? right? Our soul. Mm-hmm. Moses' soul had totally penetrated throughout. Uh, uh, right, physical. exactly. His physical was no longer a factor whatsoever. Right, he was basically alive. He means his body was basically just there, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to as opposed to most of us that our soul is just there keeping us alive. You know, mm-hmm. he, he his body was just barely clinging on for any influence. Right, he was basically a soul. Well, we have a soul as well. Our soul is subjugated to our body, and thus we're very, we're primarily physical. So, prophecy is the principle that this that man can achieve uh, this certain degree of perfection 
that is going to warrant a divine communication. Why? Because they have the spiritual tools to actually take a tread along the pardis, right? Dig deep into the ideas of uh, of God and having some sort of divine uh, divine uh, experience, experience or communication. Now, it's very important. Us Jews, we've had prophets for a long, long time. Prophecy was quite common, in fact, in the times of prophecy. Right? Prophecy mm-hmm. ended. Why did prophecy end? Prophecy ended because the spiritual level, the spiritual capacity of the generations decreased. got worse, decreased, right? Devolved, mm-hmm. and eventually, after Chagai Zechariah Malachi, they were the weakest of the prophets. But there was no more prophets after the afterwards. That's what we spoke about last time during the uh, history classes. We talked about Ezra coming in to try to save the day, right? Mm-hmm. Ezra trying to create a Judaism that's going to going to survive once prophecy already dissipates and disappears. Now, uh, so so prophecy is a big is a big deal. But the idea, the core idea, is the fact that God is going to communicate to us uh, what He wants from us. Instructions. Now. Uh, what do you need to do if you want to become a prophet? What are the qualifications? A lot of differences is some qualifications. Very interesting here. You have to be a great scholar. Number one, you've got to be a great scholar. Right? Number two, oh, in Torah. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Number two, you've got to be mighty in your conquest of your character. Right? We have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Right? What's our problem? Right, our problem is that we are dominated by our soul. Our, uh, by our body, I'm sorry. Our body's in pole position. Right? Everyone knows what pole position is, NASCAR, right? Who is the driving force of our experiences, of our consciousness? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we feel? If I give you a punch in your leg, you'll feel it, right? Mm-hmm. If you do a sin, you don't feel nothing, right? When you drink a glass of water, you feel something special, right? When you chew matzah, you're doing a mitzvah, mm-hmm. your soul feels enriched, but what do you feel? You feel nothing. You feel like you're chewing crackers. Mm-hmm. That's what you feel. Right? We don't have the sensory relationship with our, with, with our soul. Right? The idea of, of, of prophecy is where someone is able to com- be in complete control of their body. Their body is no longer power power influence. What's influencing? The soul. Okay, by definition, the soul, the soul is the one who's in charge. Well, okay, you're gonna be you're gonna be a prophet. Because now now you're you, the tools that you're using to encounter these ideas are, are spiritual. So that's what, that, what else you need. You have complete control. Your do- desire is complete in his body. Uh, uh, and he was able to isolate his focus and mind to spiritual matters. Now, it's very important. Diff- there's different levels of prophecy. We'll see a little more about this. Right? Most prophets, they're, they're, they have visions while they're sleeping at night. And their body, very interestingly, the body starts shaking like a leaf in a hurricane. That's what happens to their body during, during, during prophecy. Why is that? Because prophecy is essentially giving... Uh, adrenaline to the soul, and the body's not able to handle it. Mm-hmm. Moses, his prophecy was done standing. We'll get to later. Later, there's another one about Moses. Moses' prophecy is standing. He's awake. He's fine. Why is Moses fine and everyone else can't stand it? Because everyone else, by the degree that they have an association with their body, their body's a factor. The body cannot possibly bear divine communication. God speaks to the body, the body dies. That's what happens. And in fact, at Mount Sinai, when the entire the Jewish people, the entire nation had prophecy, they all died, says the Talmud, and had to be brought back to life. And they died again. They brought back to life. Why were they dying again so many times? Because they, it was like putting the, the electric socket, like you're putting in the wrong voltage, right? You're not capable, or a capable receptacle of this kind of communication. You're physical. Even, huh? 
like in a toaster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And even the great prophets, they still had some degree of, of, of bodily influence. What happens? They have shaking like a leaf. They can't. They have to do at night where their body is, is is weaker. Moses is awake. Moses is standing. Moses has zero. There's zero influence of his body. Right. It's just it's he have communication like I would have with my friend. Face to face, Moses speaks to God. Mm-hmm. Remarkable and incredible. Now, uh, the uh, the content of prophecy very important. It is in the form of an image. Uh, Jacob sees a ladder. Right, uh, mm-hmm. Jeremiah sees a swollen pot. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, no two prophets prophesize with the same style. Mm-hmm. Right, every prophet has to give their own interpretation, their own flavor of what their prophecy is. All the prophets they can't summon it. This is all exceptions to Moses. We'll get to Moses a little bit later. All the prophets cannot summon it. Right, they had to just be waiting. Abraham was a prophet. Right, mm-hmm. when did Abraham first experience prophecy at the age of? 75. That's the first time Abraham experienced prophecy. Did he make an appointment by the doctor, nope. by the Zotdoc, and say, uh, uh, yeah, it looks like Monday morning is fine. Yeah. What, like, how did he know? He didn't know, right? You, you never know unless you're Moses. Moses is able to speak to God whenever God, Moses wants. Awake, no problem. Face to face, direct communication, direct instructions. All the other prophets, they come, right? They're, they're at night. It's not direct instructions, it's not what they wanted. It's up to the Almighty to decide when they want to communicate. What do they communicate? It could be matters of personal growth, right? Stuff that are maybe not relevant to everyone else. It could be matters of great, great, or even grave national importance, right? Samuel is the leader of the people, right? Uh, Joshua is the leader of the people. Moses is the leader of the people, right? Moses, and Moses also is very important. Moses is giving us the Torah. Torah he got via communication with God, i.e., what we call prophecy. God tells Moses, write voracious. Moses writes voracious. God tells Moses, write Bara. Moses, write Bara. This is the first verse of the Torah. Elohim, et the right? 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 At the arts. God tells Moses, communication, prophecy, write the Torah. Our Torah that we have today cannot exist unless it came from God. If the Torah, if the Ten Commandments were just some ideas that were cobbled together, they're very good ideas, right? Don't get me wrong. Fantastic ideas, but if it's not from God, well, then it's Dale Carnegie. That's what it is, right? It's uh, Peter Drucker, right? It's it's nice management tips. It's nice it's nice ideas for functioning society, for even great societies. But it's not divine. It's not Torah. Therefore, it's from man. If it's from man, it has no bearing. It has. It's not binding. It's nothing. You can choose anything from that. Yeah, yeah. Choose what you want. Exactly. Exactly. Thus, says my monies. Oh, we'll get this a little bit later. This is all rehashed again. I'm, I'm jumping a little, a little bit ahead. Uh, before before we get there, sorry, it's a little too impetuous there, but uh, but uh, the Torah is all from God. Thus, it is all binding. Thus, is all meaningful. Okay, now very important here, prophet. Let's say a prophet comes and tells us, you know what? I am a prophet. Fantastic. Okay, and I have a message from you. Fantastic. Who's a message from God? You know what the message is? A repudiation, a rejection of one of the lessons of Moses. Right? Oh, yeah. We execute them. This false prophet. All of the prophets are only believed because of what? Because of Moses. Moses laid down the law. Moses is mm-hmm. the verified prophet. Moses, the prophet, like we said, with the little blue check by his uh, Twitter account, right? Moses has been verified, right? Moses was the prophet that what we believe Moses forever because of. Of, of us experiencing his prophecy 
life. The Jewish people were temporarily elevated. They weren't worthy. They all, they all died, right? Because they were all bodies. But they were elevated temporarily to levels of prophets at Mount Sinai. They experienced the prophecy alongside Moses. Thus, Moses tells us who's a prophet, who's not a prophet. Most of the gifts of the Torah, unless the prophet is on the same or equal level as, as, as Moses, which no one, no one is, only then can we uh, accept their words, which we can't. Uh, okay, now how do we inspect the prophet? We're going to talk about that, how we inspect prophets. Uh, so this is that. So principle number, number six is prophecy in general. Principle number seven is that Moses is the father of all prophets, right? I believe with true faith, or with full faith, complete faith, that the Torah, I'm sorry, this is number seven, uh, that the prophecy of Moses, our teacher, peace upon him, be upon him, was true, and he was the father of the prophets, both those who preceded him and those who followed him. Like we said, Moses is the father of all prophets. He's the verified prophet. Abraham's a prophet as well. How do we know Abraham's a prophet? How do we know? Because Moses told us. Mm-hmm. Josh was a prophet, right? Samuel's a prophet. How do you know that Samuel's a prophet? Because Moses told us. Moses told us what, what are the requirements for a prophet. Uh, and like we said, the four differences between the prophecy of Moses and the prophecy of everyone else. Moses has direct communication, what's called in the Talmud, Aspaklaria Meira. Uh, see the Talmud in Yvamos uh, 69, A or B, I remember, and, and, and Ramban brings it down in Genesis 17a. Uh, and versus the rest of the prophets, they have imagery that they have to interpret. Moses is awake, everyone else is asleep. Moses is not frightened, face-to-face communication like he would speak to a friend. Uh, and Moses can summon God whenever he wishes. Uh, now, why is it so important? Why is it important for us to believe that Moses had this higher level of commitment? Remember we said the 13 principles of faith are so crucial that anyone you deduct any one of them, mm-hmm. you don't have Judaism. It's important. Moses was the one who gave us the Torah. In 24 books of the Bible, we find only in five of them mitzvahs, instructions. Mm-hmm. Why? Those are the five books of Moses. Moses was the prophet that gave us the Torah. No other prophet gave us the Torah. We have the prophet that gave us rabbinic law, or instructions, or musar, or criticism, or rebuke, or castigation, or reprimandation. We have a lot of stuff in the prophets. Fantastic prophets. Not not questioning that whatsoever. However, Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe. Torah was taught us by Moshe. Why? Moshe gave us the Torah without any of his personal influence right. influencing the instruction. Right. Moses yeah. is a funnel. Right. Moses is not a, it's not, a, it's not a sieve. Moses does not contribute his own flavor mm-hmm. to the Torah. Uh, therefore, we know that there's no room for mistakes or even any of the slightest deviations from God's intent. We don't know. Um, okay. We speak the prophets. We say we'll skip that. Okay, let's go to number eight. Uh, what's number eight? The Torah is divine. Uh, I believe with complete faith that the entire Torah now is in our hands. The same with those given to Moses, our teacher. Peace be upon him. Uh, this is important. What do we say? We say that if someone does not accept, if someone doesn't accept that the Torah is true, right? let's say someone says, you know what, the Torah is not true. Okay, fantastic. The Torah is not true. Fine, so he's just out of the question. Someone says, you know what, the Torah is true. I believe that the Torah is true. 100%. Well, minus one verse. It's hmm. 5,845 verses. Lots and lots of verses. Thousands upon thousands of verses. Right? More than 50, almost 6,000 verses. All of them are true. All of them are valid. All of them are from Moses. All of them directly from God. Dictated to God. 
God tells Moriah, this is very important. I want to say, we stress this again. Maimonides points this out. Nachmanides points this out. All the commentators point this out. The Torah is written by Moses. However, Moses did not uh, uh, affect or effect any of the... Uh, he has absolutely no influence on the Torah. He is just the channel by which God gives us the Torah. Channel or conduit or whatever word you want to use, but not at all contributing to towards the Torah. Now, if someone says, you know what, the Torah that we have, a lot of verses, fantastic, wonderful, but not all of it is given is divine. Mm-hmm. There's one verse in Leviticus, one verse in Exodus, or one verse anywhere in the entire Torah that's not divine. But everything else is a thousand percent divine. Everything else, a hundred percent. Everything else is, is divine, right? Besides for this one. Talmud says, He has no portion of the world to come. This is someone who is repudiating uh, item number two, number eight of the 13 principles. They're essentially mm-hmm. saying, well, there's a mistake. You know what they're essentially saying? It was not a perfect transmission. Mm-hmm. right? They're essentially saying Moses was not the perfect prophet. Mm-hmm. right? What they're saying is the Torah is not so nice on shakier grounds. Mm-hmm. Now, I, think, I think today, like, this is uh, this is kind of you know, think about it this way. You know, we talk about, as I know this is a controversial topic, how, how uh, palatable are you guys to uh, controversial topics? Mm-hmm. You are. Everyone is? <laughs> okay, I'll put this slide right. This is a controversial topic. You okay with this? Okay. So uh, today you have some people saying, well, listen, the Torah, homosexuality, gay marriage, you know, not a problem. What they're essentially saying that the verse in the, in, in, uh, the verse in the Torah that talks about about a man shouldn't sleep with another man is not divine, right? Otherwise, well, how are you going against God? What they're essentially taking one verse and cutting out the Torah, right? According to the Talmud, they have no portion of what to come because they're rejecting the Torah. That's right. And why are they doing that? Because they have a desired outcome, right? They say, "Listen, I, you know, it's socially unacceptable to say that uh, that 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 homosexuality is a sin. It's unacceptable, right? Because our uh, com- community has evolved, and this is fine, right? There's no one man with a woman. What they're, yeah. right, what they're saying is mm-hmm. that this part of the Torah, this one verse of the Torah, mm-hmm. is not divine. Mm-hmm. But why are they saying it? They're saying because they're arrogant, because they think they're more important than God, mm-hmm. and they're saying, I want it to be like that, that's so right. that's why I'll change it. That's, right. that's what they're saying. What they're essentially saying is, I don't believe in Torah, I don't believe in the, the entire Torah, I'm picking and choosing what I want, <laughs> Thus, it's not divine. Thus, they have no portion of the no portion because they're not they're not they're not part of the Jewish people. How can you have a portion of one? Is it possible that if one rejects uh, any level of the Torah, that it's like as if you're rejecting Hashem itself? Well, I think you're or you're rejecting Hashem's uh, dominion over the Torah. Right. Torah, being right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, just like someone could desire another woman right. who's married. Yeah, right. You know, that's a very natural, normal thing. You know, no one's going to say that humans aren't designed to sin. We are. Yeah. We said that already. Of course we are. If, yes, of course. We're designed, some of us are designed to sins in ways that are more conventional. Some of us are less conventional. But so what? We're all designed to sin, and that's by design. And if we weren't designed to sin, well, what value would it be for us abstaining from sin? But even though if you use the mind to think that way, wouldn't you still be going against the Torah? Well, what does the Torah say? The Torah says... Don't do it. The Torah says, don't do it. So he didn't do it. He's good to go. Just like the Torah says, don't sleep with, another, with a married woman, right? Right. 
just don't do it. You, you don't, don't do it. it. Well, well, what if some? Well, you have a Yetzirah. You have an inclination. You know that's that's the way they might have designed you, and your job is to struggle with that and how you overcome that. That's and you know, there's four right? different yeah. there's four different levels of how someone would four or even five different levels of how someone would engage with their evil inclination to ensure either to channel towards something else or to not think about it or to uh, or to push it off or either lots of different tactics mm-hmm. and strategies that you can use short term long term to combat your Yetzirah, your evil inclination. That is the Torah. Right? In part of Hunu Zash Mishkel Bishamadish. If this right, this Thomas says, Thomas says, if someone if the Yat Sahara attacks you, drag him to the to- the house of study. Barasi Yat Sahara, I created a Yat Sahara, Barasi Torah Tavlin, created the Torah as Tavlin, which means either antidote or a spice. Spices I like it up. I like I'll take both of them. <laughs> I have a whole class in this. We can talk about a whole class. But either way, the the the, the fact that uh, that uh, that uh, you know someone were cut out one verse in the Torah, well, then they're essentially what they're essentially doing. They're saying, "I wanted to be like that. Mm-hmm. Thus, I am more important than God." Mm-hmm. Right? You got no portion of what to come. Now, also, this this takes a level. It was Megillah Thomas and Thomas Andrew ninety nine A on the bottom. It says as follows. If someone says, you know what, I believe in the Torah, written Torah, I don't believe in the oral Torah, right? They're reputing a core, yeah, it's it's a a core, it's a core element of the Torah, right? The Torah itself talks about this. Moses delivered to us, many tradition forever. We already talked about last week about the tefillin as as an example. Uh, Many, many other examples as to how we know that oral Torah is true, how it's been demonstrated. Thus, and if they reject that, then they also have no portion of what they're and a step further. If someone says, I believe in the entire oral Torah, everything, 63 books of the Mishnah, everything, but there's one Kalva Homer, <laughs> this one Talmudic syllogism that I don't, I don't think that's true. Right? We are confident, and we're so confident that our transmission process has been so perfect. And that's, that's actually, in fact, uh, number, I think it's number nine. We'll get that in a second. Our transmission process has been so perfect. There are so many safety gaps. There's so many methods to ensure that the Torah was indeed transmitted perfectly without any mistakes. We have the Sanhedrin. We have the prophets. We have the Kohen Gadol. So many things uh, uh, that, uh, and additionally, that the Torah is in our hands. That how we have methods of adjudicating problems in Torah transmission, wherein the Torah is 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 lower shemaim. It's not in the heavens. And it's not on the other side of the of the ocean. It's 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 very close to us. Right when the court says yay, yay it is. Right, where and even if there was a mistake in transmission, we still have the accurate Torah. Right, we're we're so confident that that we say if someone doesn't believe in any of it, it will hurt them. no portion with the That's 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 uh, that's uh, eight. So the, that the Torah um, that we have today is the same Torah. The transmission was was flawless. Uh, I, each one of these is its own class. I, 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 like I said, each one is its own class. What are the different things? That, what are the different ordinances that were put in place to ensure that the Torah will be transmitted properly? The written Torah, how it has to be copied from an existing Torah, how we cannot have any mistakes in it, how uh, Torahs were cross-checked against mm-hmm. each other to make sure that there were no mistakes, how we look at the Torahs that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. they're identical to the Torahs we have today, etc., etc. All like Torah, written Torah was transmitted perfectly. Oral Torah as well. The method of instruction of a transmission was incredible. The amount of detail, the amount of scholarship, the amount of dedication that people had to even one word of the Oral Torah, the great heroism, the great martyrdom that was done uh, to ensure the Torah, Torah was mm-hmm. transmitted accurately, perfectly throughout the generations is remarkable. Uh, and uh, and once again, remember, uh, you know, zoom out for a second. What are we saying here? God gave us a Torah. Mm-hmm. 
God, if God does something, God's going to do something in a way that it's going to be guaranteed to endure. Right? And that's, and that's what happened, you know? Right? Essentially, we're saying God gave it to us. Well, how would God do something perfectly? Mm-hmm. Thus, uh, God is one who says, you know what? There has to be the duality of the, of the written uh, corpus and the oral corpus, and they can be contrasted against each other. You look at the Talmud and how much, how much, uh, uh, how much of of the of the rigorous examination of someone's tradition has to pass by the test of the of the written Torah, mm-hmm. and how when the Mishnah was uh, was was codified, how that became also a written par- part of quote unquote the written Torah, where it it is. Uh, it is uh, uh, incontrovertible to future generations. Thus, the Talmud, the later generations, are contrasted vis-a-vis their accuracy and compatibility with the Mishnah. Mm-hmm. Right? And once the Talmud is written, etc., like the Rishonim, the great commentators of the medieval times, their teachings are only as good as how they fit in the Talmud. Talmud's teachings are only good as how they fit well in the Mishnah. The Mishnah's teachings are only good as well they fit in the, in the, in the Torah. This interplay between the written oral Torah is the way to do it, to ensure that it is dynamic on one hand, and uh, uh, lasting for eternity on the other hand. So that would be number eight and number nine. Uh, and thus we conclude the, f- the, the last, uh, the four of the, uh, of the, uh, of the prophecy. Uh, so we said number one, believe in prophets. Uh, number two, the prophecy of Moses. Number three, that Moses gave us, uh, that, uh, that, that the Torah, uh, and it's the same Torah that we have to Moses. So it was, it was and it was not, uh, and it, we cannot change it. So we cannot add no, nor subtract. If someone comes and says, you know what, I want to add a mitzvah. I want to have 614 mitzvahs. I want all these Jews to have to change their emails from, from, uh, from Shmuley 613 to Shmuley 614, you know? Yeah. I want everyone to change, and all the license plates to say, hey, 613, all of them got to be changed 614, right? What do we say? You're a false, a false prophet, a false messiah, and we execute you. Okay, that's uh, that. Th- th- those are the next four. So five of theology, four of prophecy. Let's go to the last four: the four of reward and punishment. Reward and punishment. Again, we said when someone does not have reward and punishment, by definition, their action that would be deserving of the reward and punishment was not meaningful. Mm-hmm. Meaningful actions have meaningful reactions. So how? Well, how do we know that? So how, right. So that is predicated on the fact that God knows what we do. So this is number number ten. God has complete knowledge of all the actions of men and all the thoughts of men. And God doesn't ignore us. Right? Remember. Are you on nine? I'm on ten. I'm on ten. Huh? So uh, nine was uh, the transmission and and eight is the divinity of Torah. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing more with the, with the original text than I am with the uh, adaptations. So uh, number ten, number ten is a repudiation of those that say, "Well, you know, God doesn't care. Does God really care if I mix some cheese with my meat? Is it really important to God? Really, Creator of heaven and earth, all the cosmos? This is what He cares about? What? How many times have you heard that question? Many times. What? Right? Usually, it's a state. It's not even a question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that so that, that's a common sentiment. What they're doing is rejecting an uh, uh, item of faith number ten in our thirteen principles. Principle number ten. And that is that God does care. God knows that God cares. God doesn't abandon. Now, cares, remember, it's very important not to get, there's a little bit of a, of a thin line here. God doesn't care, essentially. If we sin, we could sin. The whole world could sin. It doesn't change God one iota. That's right. Right? Uh, however, it's meaningful. It, it, it's meaningful, right? Uh, it, it has real spiritual ramifications. Consequences. Right, and thus there's consequences. Fantastic. 
you get some examples here. The Rambam brings examples, brings some verses in the Torah that seem to point that, like Sodom and Gomorrah, they had consequences because of their actions, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so, that, so that's so that's a uh, a necessary prerequisite for items number eleven, twelve, and thirteen, and that is number one. Uh, eleven is that God does reward and punishment. So every mitzvah has within it certain spiritual power that is uh, that is harnessed, and uh, it's a certain spiritual reality. We, we, we're, we have a very hard time thinking of spiritual items in tangible terms. We think of it as like you know some sort of credit that you get. It's not. It's not real. A table is real. Mm-hmm. You know, we see things are real. We remember we only have a sensory interaction with with what's 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 physical, right? Uh, what happened to Bilam on on his donkey? Right? He didn't see the yeah, spiritual he entity. Right? He didn't mm-hmm. see it, so it wasn't there. It wasn't real, right? Mm-hmm. God opens his eyes. Suddenly he sees it. It becomes real. Right? We don't see the spiritual ramification. We don't see the Torah. We see it's a book. You know. This is a book, Harry Potter's book, the same to us, right? Because that's what we're interacting with just what we see physically, right? This principle is about the fact that our actions are real. They have real tangible consequences, good and bad, because they're real actions. It's like, it's like if I say, hey, I build a table, right? You build a table, you have a table now. That makes sense to us. Mm-hmm. You just built a table. Okay, you have a table. Mazel tov. Someone, someone built this table, and you, know, you have a table. Fantastic. Wonderful. Right? Sensational. Actions are building. Right? Our actions build things. We talk about, uh, the Talmud talks about building worlds, all these worlds on a much grander scale. Our actions are spiritual hammers and nails that are building realities. Mm-hmm. And these realities are what we consume in a spiritual world. What happens when someone dies? Right? Their souls and their bodies are separated. What happens in the afterlife? Well, what's the afterlife? Right? <laughs> it's a spiritual world. Spiritual, what happens in the spiritual world? Same thing happens in the physical world, to the physical things. In the physical world, what do you need? You need air, you need water, you need food, you need nourishment, you need, right? The soul needs that as well. In a spiritual world, well, the soul's there. Everyone's soul is there. And some souls it's have... interacting with that world, therefore it's sensitive, it knows it. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, that's all it is. Oh, yeah. That's all it is. And what does the soul need? The soul needs food and water. And the Talmud, the Talmud says this. A Maimel Torah, right? The, the Torah is water, right? And the, 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 the Torah is compared to bread. Mm-hmm. And if someone says Rabbi Kiva, if someone is without a Jew without Torah, it's like, it's like a fish out of water, right? Mm-hmm. It's oxygen, right? Our actions are building the sustenance, the nutrients, and 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 the, and and the and the and, and, and the things that we need in the spiritual world. We don't see it, right? It's not, it's not physical. It's spiritual. It's spiritual, you can't see, right? Remember, your eyes are physical. If if our eyes were spiritual, who knows what we would see? Maybe there's angels in the room. Maybe there's I don't know what there's in the room. <laughs> hey guys, how's it going? Right? We have no idea what's in the room because we don't have. We our eyes are physical. Yeah, yeah. If our eyes. We're spiritual for a second. Well, then we might freak out, like Billum freaked out, right? Yeah, we're good. So that's 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 number ten. Our actions have have, have consequences and ramifications. Shoot. So I know there's the whole like what you're doing. It's forbidden. Yeah. Yeah. Also, but also it could be a mistake. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, yes. that's the rationale. Yeah, yeah. So then, um, then I'm sure it's this, but like, what it says that you can't bathe an animal unless mother's milk. Right? 
So what if you had made uh, milk or cheese from that animal and like the court of rabbis verified that that meat is from that same animal and you made that and that same animal is not man, that's, that, that's not what it means. That's yeah. If we take a literal interpretation of what it means, that, that's maybe what you would deduce. Uh, but it, what it does mean, it says, don't put your kid in his mother's milk. It says it three times. Mm-hmm. Talmud tells you, what does that mean? Why is, we wouldn't say the same thing twice. You don't need to tell someone, the Torah doesn't need to tell us something twice, mm-hmm. right? unless it's telling us something else. It's telling us three things. Number one, don't cook milk and meat. Number two, don't yes. eat milk and meat. Number three, don't benefit milk and meat. Mm-hmm. Now, where does it say don't says don't cook kid in his mother's milk? What does it say about benefiting? What does it say anything about uh, about eating? It doesn't say that, but that's the Talmud tells us what it says. For the Talmud is the teacher's guide, right? Talmud is the uh, is the is the Rosetta Stone uh, for for the Torah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interpreting uh, for us what it is. Okay, Talmud has been has been the the writing down of the oral Torah. Yeah. Okay, that's number that's number ten. Uh, I'm sorry, that's number eleven. It's consequences for our actions, real. Number twelve, very famous, Mashiach. We believe in Mashiach. Now, what is Mashiach, and is it important? So, Rambam tells us uh, the very first thing that we learned in the Rambam. In uh, I always point this out very interestingly. Um, in, in the Rambam, the book of the Rambam was written in, in conceptual order. Right? What's most important is written first, what's most least important is written afterwards, right? progressively. What's the most important thing he talks about? The first four chapters of theology. <coughs> what's the most important thing? First thing he writes, you've got to believe in God. What's the last thing he talks about? Messiah. Seems like it's indicating to us that it's the least important thing to know about. Why? Because it just confuses us. Right? A lot of people a lot of people say, oh, I think I know when redemption's coming. It's, it's, a very, it's, a very, it's a very sexy topic, right? It's something we want to know about. It's like... Yeah, it's like, oh, things are so much. We need Mashiach. Okay, when's Mashiach coming? Like, you know, that, that is the risk where someone says, oh, they, they just exasperate and they want Mashiach. You know, things are really bad. You know, let's, let's talk about Mashiach, right? So, uh, so Raman tells you know what? It's the last thing. What's the second to last thing? Who knows? It's a trivia question. What's the second to last thing that Raman talks about? Two chapters. The last two chapters of Raman are laws of Mashiach. The previous two, the chapters before, the two chapters preceding that are the laws of Gentiles. Ram's telling you, this is a book for Jews. Laws of Jews. I'll tell you the laws of Gentiles before I tell you the laws of, of Messiah. These are laws that are not relevant to you. Laws that are not relevant to you at all are more, still more relevant to you, more important to you than the laws of, of Messiah. So it's not so important to us, but it's a core belief. It's a core belief because this is an idea that is uh, established and it's crucial, it's important, it's a reward, and it's a, a manifestation of a, a world in its perfected state. We mentioned... Uh, we mentioned this a week ago, some of y'all weren't here. Uh, 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, 2,000 years of Mashiach. Right? Mashiach is big picture. Right? What is happening to the world? Big picture mission statement of the Jewish people. What does it look like at the finish line right? of this 6,000 year odyssey that we have? Right? Where it started off, Abraham came, changed it. We had chaos. Now we have Torah. We had Torah. Now it's about Mashiach. It's about teaching the entire world about uh, about, about God. How it, what, you know th- that ends with Mashiach. That this whole journey ends with Mashiach. What happens afterwards? Who knows? To debate in Talmud, does everything change? Everything now changed. Rambam says that nothing will change. The only difference is, are we going to be subjected from the uh, from the uh, uh, from the Gentiles or not? Says the Rambam. Last words of the Rambam that the prophecies, all the great prophecies, all the great uh, Jewish leaders, when they yearned for Mashiach, it wasn't because they'll be rich or they'll be smart or they'll be happy or they'll have freedom. It was to study Torah. That's what it's about. Freedom to study Torah. 
it's it, it's it's a certain weakening of our bonds that are withholding us from having our spiritual uh, experiences that we really uh, yearn and desire. That is number eight. So number twelve, of course, is more details. You want to hear more details? I have a whole class on Mashiach on my website. Go to my website, rabbiwobi.com, Look, Google Messiah, and then Google search the search bar. Look, Messiah. Listen to all the details, all the history of the false messiahs. And my grandfather. He uh, was mis- no. Sorry. <laughs> no. He, 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 he and his father, in their day, they had, uh, I think, a hundred messiahs. Yeah, a lot of false messiahs. You know, yeah. in, in their day, I mean, they taught me. Yeah, so uh, so we have a very very checkered history, really really yeah. bad history with messiahs. You know, JC didn't do as half as much uh, damage to Jewish people as Shabtai Svi or Jacob Frank did. Or well, what's beautiful is we have uh, litmus tests for what that means. Yes, uh, yeah, six things yeah. I need to do. So you want to know if you want to know what you need to do to become a messiah? Like, listen to my classes. Six things in them enumerates. And then the yeah, <laughs> we, we were at home. Uh, the simplest thing is like building the temple you know, right, in Jerusalem. Yeah. Just just go there, take your crane, pull off the dome of the rock, start building. But we were we were at home you know, in, in Israel, and and we we talked to this man, and uh, a lot of people in Israel think they're Messiah. Yeah, no, so no, 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 This is what he said. He said, and I asked him. I said, "Sir, you know, I'm in your home, you know, and if I said something wrong, can you forgive me now for asking this question?" <laughs> He said he was Messiah. Uh, no, he told us this. Though, what did he tell us, baby? They said the, Maya, the Messiah was already here, but he is just waiting to be crowned. That's what he said. To yeah, us. but in in Jewish in, Israel, in you know. Jewish in Jewish philosophy, mm-hmm. Messiah is not just about the individual; it's about the idea. Yeah, the individual is just the is just the spark plug. Right. You know, the Talmud says, "Where is Messiah?" Well, Messiah is sitting at the entrance of Rome, and what's he doing? He's wrapping himself with bandages. He's sitting with along with all the lepers. Well, how do I know which one he is? There's a bunch of lepers there wrapping yeah, up their bandages with all these boils and all, right? Uh, well, he's the one who does one at a time. Right? Everyone else, when they change their bandages, they take off all the bandages. All the old bandages, put on all the new ones. He takes one dirty one off and puts a new one on, right? Why? Because in case he gets called up to do his mission, he'll do it right away. I don't know. I, I'm sure he's not there. Right? I'm sure he left. Yeah. Left his post. But like the, the these um, these lessons are are are, uh, are more important than just uh, who he is and all this uh, silly conjecture and curiosity and gossip that we that we uh, that we gravitate to. Anyhow, anyhow, that's that's number twelve. Number thirteen is uh, revivification of the dead. Right? We believe that this is when someone dies, they're not dead forever. They will come back. God will reinfuse our dead body. With our soul, once again, we will all emerge from uh, from uh, from mm-hmm. from from death. In fact, once again, someone says, "Ain't in the Torah." If someone says, "I don't believe in reviving the dead," says the Talmud in Sanhedrin, "Ain't low no portion will come." He's rejecting a core element of faith. What if someone says, "You know what? I believe that that dead people will come back to life, but I don't believe there's any source for it in the Torah." Ain't no no portion will come. And the Talmud spends about two or three pages bringing, bringing a, I think, 20 or 25 proofs. And I, I, when I, I learned it twice already, but every time I lose track of how many proofs there are. Right? And just a, a, a slew of proofs from the Torah make it absolutely abundantly clear that, uh, that when someone dies, they're interred into the ground. It's not the only time we're going to see them. We're going to see them again. Uh, there may be some people that may, may not be, but uh, for the most people, uh, the, the idea of God re- reviving. And many debates, very interesting stuff. Well, you know, all these arguments uh, that it's uh, the we Tom recounts these the, these polemics that that happened uh, two thousand years ago where people said oh what do you mean how could someone die and come back to life or the guy says well really 
<laughs> have you ever seen a baby? What does a baby come out of? It's just out of thin air, right? Well, if something – it was like I, I give the example of like, hey, you know, if I took this iPad, right, or this computer. I have an iPad here, right? If I took it and I wanted to just separate all the – just the core parts of it. Like if I were to just uh, separate just all the – you know, what, what, is this, what, is, what is this made out of? So it's made of some steel and some plastic, whatever. I would just make a pile, a little pile of plastic, a little pile of this, right? And I would say, okay, fine. Okay, here, here's an iPad, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Everyone sees an iPad? See a pile of some aluminum, a pile of some steel, a pile of some wire, copper, right? That's what it is, isn't it? A little pile of glass. This is an iPad, right? Mm-hmm. And then I take another iPad that looks exactly like this. It's just that it broke. I don't know. It's, it's not working anymore. It's, a, it's pretty. Turn it on, doesn't turn on. I think which one of them is more likely to be an iPad or to be brought back to life? Be a functioning iPad. Which one? Clearly this. You gotta figure out what's wrong with it and fix it. Talmud says, you know, what, how are babies born? I don't want to get down this road. You know, if you don't know, maybe Google it or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but how are babies born? It's out of nothing. Like, there's nothing there that makes, 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 makes life have. If, if something can come out of nothing, clearly something that already was once, well, was once alive can be brought to life. Now, that's an example, but there's m- many, many very fascinating, interesting debates in the Talmud. And Sanhedrin, once again, in this chapter that Aramam uses introduction, uh, and that is a crucial core belief. When someone dies, we'll see them again, God willing. Uh, this is not the only place. In fact, it's, it's, just, it's the location of, of, of the ultimate reward and punishment um, mm-hmm. is going to be after Tchesmes and after resuscitation of the dead, not beforehand, not after someone dies, but after uh, everyone's resuscitated, uh, that sometime down the line. Mm-hmm. Thus concludes the 13 principles. Once again, five of theology, four of prophecy, and four of reward and punishment. I can't believe we did this. We did all core, <laughs> core principles of Jewish faith in about an hour. Okay, wonderful. Any, any questions, anyone? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, it's you the, you to uh, no, no problem. So, yes, yeah, so the, the original uh, the question we asked is that if God needs nothing, God cannot be improved or regressed in any way, uh, why would God create the world? So there's two traditional answers to that question. Number one, the answer is uh, to give. While God existed, God personally or individually, God essentially cannot be improved or regressed, there was something that God was limited that God could not give. God could not benefit because nothing else that existed. So that's why God created the world to give. Okay, so why does God just not give? Right? God wants to give in the most perfect way. Just like when God gives us the Torah, the Torah is given to us in the most perfect way. Mm-hmm. Right? So to when God gives, gives goodness, God wants to give goodness in the most perfect way. Thus, God created a, 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 a entity, humans, mm-hmm. half body, half soul, wherein we have free choice. The free choice contributes whether or not we'll get or, or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or not. Thus, the goodness that God's going to give is one that we earned, not one that we would give given as a handout. The pleasure of earning a paycheck is much better than getting one from the government for free. Always. Mm-hmm. God wants to give us the pleasure, the ultimate pleasure. God wants to give, give us the pleasure, right? God wants us to earn it. Thus, he created the entire ecosystem wherein we earn mm-hmm. the pleasure that, that God, 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 God receives. That's uh, obviously a simplification but uh, of, of the entire uh, pillar of Jewish thought, but that's the idea number one. Idea number two is that God indeed was lacking something, and that is God's kingdom was limited. Why? If God exists and just God exists, nothing else. Well, then nothing that independently testifies to God's dominion. Mm-hmm. Thus, God's kingdom is lacking. God creates humanity, 
right? Humanity independently testifies to that. Why, why independently? Because we have an option to choose otherwise. Mm-hmm. Human are created with the option to reject God. God in his infinite wisdom was able to create this entity where it's capable of free choice and we could choose God or reject God. Thus, mm-hmm. our free will once again is going to contribute to the fulfilling of God's, of God's uh, okay. ultimate purpose. I may have, I don't know. I do have a five-part series on this idea. <laughs> uh, so that's the idea. E- either way, uh, free will is, is, the, is, is going to be a play a big part of the, of the, of the purpose of, of a wider creator of the world. Either, because free will is going to contribute towards man receiving reward, Right for their mm-hmm. actions, or free will is going to be uh, man choosing to accept God's dominion over him. Uh, thus, man uh, uh, like uh, uh, making God a king. So that's what all of uh, Rosh Hashanah is all about. We talked about making God a king, Lahamlech, to make God a king, mm-hmm. right? Because we are capable of rejecting God. Thus, our acceptance in God makes God, so to speak, more not not a dictator who compels. These sub these subjects, rather somewhat a teen who is voted or is 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 uh, is is uh, coronated by the by the populace by the constituents. That's the answer to the question. It's a big topic, but that's that's it. Very quickly. Fantastic, guys. You know how I look at how I look at the situation, Michael. I look at this table. Table being the universe. This table, and outside this table where we are sitting is God. Outside of this universe is not. But the problem with that, Frederick, is that we're trying to give physical. Right? It's very hard. Remember that. That's where you go down that 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 dark hole. You know. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that. Maybe you're right, or maybe you're wrong. I don't even know. Uh, but it's 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 very dangerous to try to say, well, where God is, where God is. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's use the Tommy yeah. Tommy's definition. Yeah. God sees and cannot be seen. Oh, yeah. we'll take that. That's yeah. a good definition yeah. as well. But in my studying, you know, deep studying in science. Yeah, I, I, that's how I put it together. You know, I don't. I, God is God in my life, you know, and always will be. But I have to look at the dimensions, and I have to look at the timeline. Of course, you have to look at dimensions. That's a nice word. Dimensions, so finite that, word. Yeah, that's why I study the way I do, and I look at it that way. When I say outside the table, because in in the Torah it says, uh, "In the beginning, uh, God created Elohim, created the heaven and the earth," but then it goes on to use different Hebrew words like, how could he create the heavens and the earth? Then he's saying that the universe wasn't here. But when he created the universe, everything was in the universe, and that's when... I don't know, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, and I don't even know if we need to actually figure this out. Let's let's take the instructions that we have. And it's interesting because really that the... the Pagan world has become the great prognosticators of those kinds of things because they are always trying to come up with ideas, and, if, and it's not established in Torah. Therefore, it's sort of empty philosophies. And but we're we're disencouraged from spending time thinking about Absolutely. this That's because the there's no way to prove any either way, and we gain nothing, and we only lose. Maybe once we finish the rest of the Torah perfectly, maybe we could go into this paradise that the Rambam talks about, this uh, orchard. Either way, guys, fantastic. We'll see you guys next time, okay?